Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. Today, we're kicking off a series of episodes about inequality in the United States. Over the next several weeks, faculty here at Washington University in St. Louis will share their research on the history of inequality, where and how it exists today, and what we can do about it going forward. Our first guest is Adia Harvey Wingfield, a professor of sociology and a regular contributor to The Atlantic. Wingfield studies the intersection of race, class, and gender in the workplace, places like corporate offices, law firms, and hospitals. We'll hear some of her findings today. As for her own professional track, Wingfield's interest in both sociology and inequality got an early start. I think I first decided I wanted to be a sociology professor when I was a high school student. I took a high school class with Mrs. Ellington, uh, which was a sociology class, and it blew me away. I found it really interesting, really exciting, very informative. Years later in graduate school, she had a similar light bulb moment when taking a seminar on women in the workplace. From then on, much of her research has been about the experiences of minority workers. According to Wingfield, a lot of the existing research in this area focuses on a group she calls the urban underclass, people who are unemployed or underemployed. That kind of work is really important, she says, but it's also only part of the story. And it seemed to me in doing a lot of my work on black professionals that we were really missing an integral and important group by not focusing on black men who were in that professional category. Men like lawyers, doctors, engineers, bankers. It's easy to assume that people in these kinds of high-profile jobs don't need to be studied because they're the success stories. They don't face inequality, they've already overcome it. Unfortunately, what we know from a lot of sociological research, not only mine but many others, is that that's not actually true, that there are still ways that processes of racial discrimination and inequality and other things serve to put black professionals in a position that isn't necessarily equal to their white coworkers. Wingfield documented these experiences in her book, No More Invisible Man, Race and Gender in Men's Work. For the book, she conducted in-depth interviews with African-American professional men. Through the conversations, she found that even in high-status positions, Black men do still confront unequal treatment at work. Doctors had some of the most dramatic stories to tell. They often cited some of the most overt examples of racial stereotyping that had an impact on their ability to do their jobs. Questions from patients or doubts from patients in particular who don't see them as being qualified or suitable or capable for delivering health care. Emergency room doctors in particular had to deal with this kind of treatment. But what about professionals who don't deal directly with the public, like lawyers or engineers? Wingfield learned that, unfortunately, these workers also face inequality at work. But, and this is important, their experiences were different and often more subtle than the overt racism described by the doctors. It's not that these workers are coming to work and people are, for the most part, uh, mistreating them openly or uh, obviously excluding them or calling them names or anything like that. In fact, these black professionals described being treated well at work and having good relationships with their white colleagues. But that doesn't mean they experience total equality. For example, when describing what it takes to be a successful black lawyer, 
One man coined the term super brother. This particular respondent was an attorney, and he talked about how uh, at his particular firm, there were a lot of white peers who had gone to average-ranked law schools or ones that were not particularly highly ranked or ones that were fine, but that they weren't kind of nationally known or considered to be top-tier, very prestigious law schools. But he said that when he thought about the men that he knew who were at firms that were comparable with his, they all had Ivy League degrees, very exceptional resumes, very uh, strong standout backgrounds. And the expectation was that for black professional men, the bar actually was a lot higher than it was, or they saw the bar to be a lot higher than it was for their counterparts. And then, even with these kinds of top-of-the-line credentials, men that Wingfield spoke with felt like, in some ways, they were still a step behind. A lot of professional success is based on social networks, knowing the right people to get the job or make the sale. Black professionals found that their white colleagues often had more access to these kinds of networks. So, for example, a lot of lawyers talked about this specifically in saying that when you advance to the partnership track or when you advance to the status of being partner in a firm, part of the expectation is that you bring in additional business. And one respondent talked a lot about how uh, he had another partner in the firm who had grown up with someone who was general counsel for a major corporate corporation. So it was relatively easy to bring that corporation into the firm and to add that to his book of business and to build that. But he talked about how, from his own circumstances, growing up, uh, and he grew up in a relatively comfortable middle-class environment, but not one where his next-door neighbor was general counsel for a major corporation, and that that actually put him at more of a disadvantage of not being plugged into those structural networks that can actively facilitate people's advancement. If this was true for someone who grew up comfortably middle-class, Think about all the people who don't have that kind of support. When Wingfield asked professionals about how their race impacts their work, they often spoke about these kinds of big structural problems. Problems that limit opportunities for African Americans overall. They're much more likely to situate that in a broader context of being in the minority as a virtue of declining support for affirmative action and declining support in schools for training science and technology and math skills and things like that among populations that are large, that are predominantly black and in predominantly black areas. So in the face of these kinds of broad structural problems, things like income inequality or lack of access to education or social networks, how did these Black professionals respond? Here we need to remember that Wingfield studies the intersection of race and gender at work. In her many conversations, she found that the men she interviewed often benefited from being men. In male-dominated workplaces like law firms, it can be easier to get along with your colleagues if you're one of the guys. Also, you're less likely than a woman to face certain stereotypes, like being too aggressive. But that's not the whole story. Wingfield also learned that if you're in a racial minority, being a man can have certain disadvantages. One lawyer talked about how uh, when he first came into the firm, somehow it was a year where a lot of hiring was done and there were maybe four or five other black men who came in at the same time. And maybe a year or so later, uh, I think there were perhaps three, two or three black women who were hired uh, in several years shortly after that. And he talked about seeing the relationship that those women were able to forge of just looking out for each other and being very, not necessarily close outside of work, but always making sure that they offered social support to each other in that environment. And he contrasted that with the experience of the black men in the firm, who he described wanting to have that type of relationship with, but nobody really taking the initiative and him having the sense that 
reaching out in that sort of way was something that women did. And it was more suitable for women to make those sort of initiatives and inroads. And he told me that when he thinks about it now, out of that cohort of men who was hired, he's the only one left. They all left for other opportunities or didn't make it through the firm's promotion processes. But those two black women are still both in the firm and they're still, they still have the same sort of relationship where they look out for each other and make sure that they offer that sort of social support. That support, Wingfield says, can be critical in environments when you're in the minority. If you feel isolated, either because of race or gender or both, it's harder to succeed. For Black male professionals, this reality is one more obstacle to success. And I think that that really speaks to these issues of how race and gender intersect in ways that we miss if we only focus on race or if we only focus on gender. So far, the picture here has seemed pretty bleak. If well-paid, well-educated lawyers, doctors, and engineers face these kinds of barriers, what kind of hope does that leave for other groups fighting inequality? People in the urban underclass fighting to break into the workforce, or women working for equal pay and opportunity? Thankfully, there is a silver lining. Even in these ultra-competitive workplaces, the men Wingfield spoke with said that their experiences with inequality made them want to help solve the problem, and not just for other Black men. One of the things that I found most interesting from the study was that Black men actually draw from their own awareness of what it means to be discriminated against and to be in the minority, to try to actively do things that can help their female counterparts. So that turns into active efforts to work with women or recruit women to work with them as law associates if they're already a partner. Or it turns into Black male doctors making an effort to make sure that women on their teams get a chance to speak up and are given opportunities to partner with them on surgeries or to get opportunities to collaborate with them on important projects because they draw from their own experiences where those opportunities weren't necessarily available to them and it makes them more attuned to and aware of the challenges that women can face in the workplace. Recognizing this pattern has big implications. Think again of all the different groups of people who are fighting against unequal treatment. Wingfield study suggests that these groups don't have to work alone. When we think about ways to create more equitable workplaces, particularly as we're talking about issues related to gender inequality, black men may very well be an untapped resource in thinking through and talking about policies that can be put in place and initiatives that can be put in place to get rid of some of the gender barriers and the gender disparities that still persist in predominantly white workplaces. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression and suggest that I think that we should just kind of bring in hordes of black men to solve this problem. That isn't accurate, and that also obscures a lot of the challenges that they do still continue to face. But I think that this underscores the importance of thinking a little bit more widely than we have in the past about how there may be more agency among certain disadvantaged groups than perhaps we've realized. With these kinds of joint efforts, along with nationwide policy changes and continued pressure on companies to make more equal work environments, there seems to be a path forward for fighting inequality on the job. And with each step, sociologists have expertise and knowledge to add to the conversation. Across the board, Wingfield strongly believes that when it comes to policymaking, sociologists deserve a seat at the table. Particularly at a time like now, when we are dealing with so many pressing and important questions that have to do with immigration, that have to do with labor force changes, that have to do with health care, that have to do with global globalization and global relations. There are sociologists who study all of these things, and these aren't 
people who are just kind of coming up with random opinions off the top of their head and just, you know, throwing them out there. This is peer-reviewed exacting research that people do that have implications for how we address these problems and how we uh, engage with the sorts of issues that we're, that we're facing, right? So I think that sociology in particular really needs to have a wider audience and that we need to be a lot more involved in speaking with policymakers and interacting with policymakers. Many thanks to Adia Harvey-Wingfield for joining Hold That Thought. Her most recent piece in The Atlantic is The Failure of Race-Blind Economic Policy, so be sure to go give that a read. And as always, you can find many more ideas to explore at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Thank you for listening.